Okay, I will say every time we shift to somewhere new teaching, it doesn't have to be like in front of new people. Every time I teach somewhere new physically, I always feel like I'm slightly off. Everything feels off. It's like home court advantage, but for teaching, teaching and preaching, I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting feeling, but all right. So tonight we are going to be back in Romans chapter 12. Um, I, I normally try to start off, as you guys probably have picked up, that I, I try to do something a little bit with a little bit of levity, a little bit of humor for an intro. Um, but instead of that, I'm going to I'm going to start with something that can be taken a little bit more seriously. Um, it, it just it was something that was on my mind, and I really could not. When I sit down and look over the passage, and I try to think of how do I want to introduce this passage, there was one thing that kept coming to my mind, and so I just decided to roll with it instead of trying to make something that wasn't there. Um, how many of you went? I know we've had some Koinonia overlap on this. How many of you have gone downtown to the inner city thing with um, Mike and Pam? Uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, all right. Yes, yes, you were there. Um, so as we move into our, our practical application section for Romans, um, the very first verse in Romans is that we're going to, be, the, the principle for the rest of the book almost is in that very first verse, is that we're going to wake up every single day and try to live and try to die in our living for Jesus Christ. And when we were downtown with uh, Fisantos, I remember uh, when I was in high school, a woman, the, one, the woman on the receiving end, sort of that side of setting things up, came up and said that to compliment Mike, basically, and this, this phrase that she said really stuck with me, that they tr that she likes to give flowers while somebody is still alive and that phrase really stuck with me because obviously normally the implication is that we give flowers when someone is dead and it's and it's too late and so i really liked uh, that concise way of saying a very important truth is that we should be we should be giving everything to everyone that we want to give while everyone is still alive and we have the opportunity um, and and she's just showing the appreciation that she had for mike in that um, we're going to come back to that, but instead of thinking of enjoying God in the future and just, you know, focusing him on focusing on him in eternity and relishing him in in that future glory, the book of Romans really is about giving our flowers to Christ every single day of our lives. I mean, I, I love it's it's a bouquet of flowers. Literally, Paul puts it in, uh, I think, Second Corinthians, where he says, that we should be a fragrant aroma to Christ. It's that Old Testament sacrificial imagery. And so this is the point that I want us to think about that we are going to be, we need to live a beautiful life. That is the point of Romans chapter 12 is to live a beautiful life that is offering everything to Christ while we still have the chance, okay? So if, if, there's that, if that little phrase can help you remember that you need to be giving everything while you're still alive, I, I want you to take that away if, if nothing else. So, all right, that's my little intro. Which way are we going to do this this week? You guys want to go? Or you want me to go? All right. Romans chapter 11. Which way we want to do this? Somebody tell me. Hey, no, don't do that. that that's yours? You have yours. All right. I love it. Let's hear it. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean there. Or somebody tell me a little bit more about what he means there. That was, a, that was a good, I mean, not the best summary I've ever heard, but it was a good summary. <laughs> yeah, the best was last week. Okay. Um, what was the context of that? About the, the Jews being arrogant about... No, 
Boom. You got it. Um, Absolutely. That's, that was really good. Um, what was, what's the main, like Paul's main agricultural analogy that you walk away with? I wasn't here last week, but I must take a stab in the dark if I'm remembering correctly. It's that you were a branch grafted onto the tree of Israel. Olive tree. You got it. All right. So I'm going to, that was great. I, I honestly think that's some of the best summary we've gotten so far. So thank you for that. I'm going to, I'm going to give mine. It's right on target with what you guys have been saying. Um, if you want to follow along in chapter 11, you're welcome to, and um, it, it should parallel as we go. So, right from the start, God has not rejected national Israel. While today there is a remnant chosen by grace, as there always has been, someday there will be more. When national Israel rejected the gospel, this caused the gospel to go forward more fully to the Gentiles, which in turn is designed to make the Jews jealous to salvation. Gentiles have nothing to be prideful about. Rather, we should be in awe that we were included into God's covenantal people group. To be included, all men must have continued belief in Christ. National Israel will one day see reintegration into the, into the tree of the people of God in a massive end-time salvation. God will always, 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 always be faithful to his promises. And while each group has had their time of unbelief, God used the other group's belief or unbelief to bring salvation to the other. Thus, God is to be greatly praised for his wisdom in saving both Jews and Gentiles. The story began with God, was orchestrated by God, and will find its completion in him. Give him his due glory. So, tonight we're going to be, chapter 3 is easily divided. It's probably the most easily divided chapter that we have, and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Um, we're going to be going through that in just a second. But before we dive in, I, I want to fight just one small little misnomer here. And that is that the application section of Romans is not an addendum to the book. It is, you know, we think of Romans as this portrait of the gospel. The portrait of the gospel ends at 11 and now we see how the gospel, you know, goes into our life. Instead, I, I want you to conceive of it as two sides to the same coin. We have the gospel on the theologic side and we have the gospel on the practical side. What does the gospel look like? Here is the life of the gospel. Here is the theology of the gospel. And so it's not so much that we're getting a tag on at the end from Paul. This is just as essential. Um, I think that there is a, a natural inclination for, for two sort of groups of people. Number one, we have the people who are really, really good at application and could not care less about the theological side, right? And that, that's a common danger. I think, that's, I think that would probably be the more prevalent one in our culture today is that we have more people interested in practical application, which is good. If you, if you tend to be that way, I don't think there's anything wrong with tending to actually live out the gospel. Um, nothing wrong with that. But if, if that is you, I would encourage you to sort of work on diving in to one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way to 11, and sort of figuring out why it is that you are doing what you're doing, right? There is, 
there's a real reason behind the actions that you're supposed to take and it will actually help you be far more grounded and capable of living out those commands when you know where it comes from. On the flip side, I, I would tend to put myself in this category. If you are much more inclined to studying and you feel much more at home in chapters 1 through 11, then it's going to be important to take extra care to meditate on every single piece of theology that you have, every th single little bit that you've been given, that you know, and all these random facts and words that you have stuffed in your brain somewhere and say how does each and every single bit of my theology lend towards practical application i would argue that if it is true theology even the most abstract piece of theology has some implication for how you should live and if it doesn't then you've probably gone beyond the limits of scripture number one usually scripture is moved from theology to application seamlessly and number two if if you have a theologic bit and you can't find something for it, perhaps the answer is to just meditate on it just a little bit more deeply until you see why scripture is emphasizing such a theme uh, into your practical application. Um, Pastor Jim mentioned this Sunday, people who try to find, the Jews tried to find life by studying the scriptures. And there is no eternal life in the scripture. It is what, in script, what scripture points to that has life and if we miss that scripture has implications for life, then we will not have life, okay, in, in both senses of that word. So, I don't know, I, I, I really think we, I think we are equally represented here. I think we have people on both sides of that coin, and so just, it's not an addendum either way. Both sides are very important, and just because it's shorter, I think we'll see it's just as full as we go through. All right, so running from chapter 12 through chapter 15, the outline I posted in band, this is the entire section for um, those three chapters, basically the transforming power of the gospel, the Christian conduct. So our, our, first, our first section in tonight is really going to provide the basis for all three of these chapters, right? This is Paul's, I would say, thesis for everything going forward. Uh, let's go ahead and ver have verses one through two read. This is the heart of the matter, literally in the outline, the heart of the matter, I didn't just say that, the heart of the matter, total transformation. So we're going to hearken back to last chapter just a little bit. And that last chapter ended that God is amazing. God does a lot of stuff and he's really powerful and no one can give him anything that can possibly repay him. That's sort of the tone we ended on. And then Paul opens this and says, what are we supposed to give him? We're supposed to give him every single living breath that we have. This is an obvious reference back to the Old Testament, right? We have the idea of a sacrifice. We have the idea of holiness, that it is set apart to God. And holy and acceptable, obviously, being sort of synonymous in that sense. And then he, then he throws in this little, little says, saying, which is your spiritual worship. How many of you grew up on KJV, just out of curiosity? Okay, we got... Okay, so... Anyone happen to have this passage memorized in KJV or NKJV or anything coming from that? What does it say? You said yes. I, I mean, okay. It is your reasonable service, which is, that's a different meaning, right? So there are four possible meanings. I'm not getting into them because we are on an overview 
of Romans chapter 12. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, basically, Logos uh, in, you know what, I'm stopping. I'm not doing that. <laughs> if you want to know, read the Yeah, no, I mean, it's right here if you want it. Um, I, I think that you can go either way on it. More than likely, there are implications of both the mind and the spiritual aspects in it. And so I think Moo hits it right on the head when he says that what Paul's really getting at here is that it's supposed to be true worship. Okay. That's obviously the most get-out-of-jail-free card possible for a commentator. But that is, I think that's what Paul is getting at, is it needs to be holy, it needs to be spiritual, it needs to be, it is obviously our reasonable service to God, and it is done while we are alive. It is not something, I mean, obviously we, we may die for our faith, but it is something where we are dying daily to ourselves and living for Christ. So it is meant to be true worship. And then we move into verse 2. And this is by living as a sacrifice. We have this present tense. We're looking for this continual improvement. What does it say? Do not be conformed to this world. Anyone know the Greek word for world? Off the top of your head. Cosmos. This is not the word cosmos. The word cosmos is not here. This is the word for age. So the, the idea is that have behaviors that don't conform to this age, right? This is inaugurated eschatology, again, buried in translation. So the idea is that we need to have behaviors that resonate with the age to come. Our lives are not supposed to look like everyone else that is living in the Adamic realm of sin behavior. So how are we going to have this behavior that is looking like something in the future, well, our mind has been transformed and we're supposed to live in accordance with that. When we do, we have a different way of thinking and then we can, again, I, it's it's a fine translation to it just, it's, a, it's tough, right? That, how, that you may by testing. I, I think of that more as like getting out there and doing stuff and that's probably true, but the idea is testing with a sense of approval. I didn't write an analogy. This would be a good time for an analogy. Yes, try. The first thing, I have read this before, and I was thinking back to what I learned in science class. We had a, this is a completely laboratory-driven class, and one of the things that my professor would say time and time again is that the point of the theory was so that you could test the theory against reality, not test reality against your theory. And so, I think what Paul is saying is almost like a precursor to a scientific view here, which is just in your life, look at look at what you've been taught, look at how God is transforming your mind, and apply it both logically and practically, and see, is what I know so far conforming to what I am seeing in my life, and what I'm seeing God do in my life, or is it not? Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and the point is that, that the transformed mind is going to be able to agree with God about his will. The untransformed mind that Paul's been referring back to cannot agree with this will. And now as a transformed mind, we can and we're, our life is testing, right? We are working to agree with God more and more about what he wants for our life. Really quickly, practical application. I'm going to move back into sort of what I did at the end of Colossians, just more practical application style. We often really wrestle with who should I marry, what job should I take, what school should I go to, all these very like, I don't know how to, decisional questions, maybe the best way to put that. 
And, and first, I, I want to say that the will of God is not hidden. It is not some cosmic Easter bunny that we have to go out and look for in the universe. It, it is revealed and it is given to us and God has given us this new mind that we are able to see it and to discern it. And the more we exercise it, the more I think Timothy says that we're going to be able to see and, and determine what is right. So God's will is more about you, as we're going to go through this passage, that you are going to be humbly part of a Christian community, and it is more about letting love reign in your life and looking at what that means, and less about what job you take and what school you go to and what Christian you marry. It is, it is how you live humbly and how you live lovingly within the calling that God has placed, like where you are called, right? That's how Corinthians puts it. You know, glorify God where you're called. Do the will of God in whatever life situation you happen to be found. Secondarily, the word testing obviously means that you are looking to find out what it, and to prove it. So I, I will say that you, the will of God is never found from the armchair right? There is no armchair theology and armchair practical application. You have to get out there and do something. You have to act in order to find out what the will of God is in, in those very sort of gray decisional areas. What if I take the wrong opportunity? God will redirect you. If you're doing the will of God and you're forced between two good alternatives, God's going to redirect you. My mind immediately goes to Acts. They try to share the gospel here. Nope. Try to share the gospel here. Nope. All right, you know, good on them for acting. The Spirit may have never told them to go into Macedonia if they'd never been trying in the first place. And so it's really important that as you seek to find out what the will of God is, you focus on the moral qualities first in whatever place you're at, and then also get off your butt and do something if you want to find out where you're actually supposed to be in terms of a more practical calling. If you don't dive in, you're going to be you're going to fail by paralysis more than likely. So that thing you're fearing you're, is going to come upon you just by the paralysis of the situation. Second section for tonight, I love where Paul goes right after this. And Paul could not phrase this more perfectly. I, I mean, obviously it's God, but it, it really is perfect. Verses 3 through 8, humility and mutual service. That's our second point for tonight. So the very, what, so the very first thing that Paul has on the heels of the will of God here is that you need to view your... The first thing on the heels of the will of God is how you view yourself, which I think is a very interesting place to start. Paul starts off by having an appropriate self-assessment. The ass assessment of self is the place where your journey on the will of God will really either go really good or really bad right out of the gates. What is the answer? View yourself soberly. Have an objective, truthful assessment about self. There are, there are two ways that you could take the next phrase regarding the measure of faith. You could either take this as how much faith God has given to each, and like we have different levels of faith, or it could mean that we measure ourselves in reference to the faith given to everybody. I don't know, okay? I don't know. I'm not sure it really matters. Paul's point here is that 
we need to have the first step of this transform mind is that we have accurate self-assessment and this is especially important to folks like myself i would say who, who have sort of that ambitious heart that ambitious mindset i you know i can desire to be the greatest and can then tend to overinflate my view of self and you know what most issues of love come from well i am too good i'm too great to ever get my hands dirty i i can't do that you have too high a view of yourself and you can never get into the mess so that is the first side of it. You know, don't view yourself too highly. You're just another one of the body. That's where Paul's going here is you're special, you're important, but you're also just another member of the body. On the other side, I don't think this is as much in the text, but I think it is in Paul's remedy, is, is that in some sense, some folks view themselves too lowly. I would argue in, in a reverse sense that this is really idolatry of self. And so it is somewhat the same thing that Paul is saying is having too high a view of self, but for ease of what I'm saying here, I'm going to say low self-esteem, low confidence, understand what I'm saying when I go through that. The answer for Paul, when he, when he moves into this section, when he says, oh, these people are too overinflated, he doesn't say have a lowly view of yourself. He says have an accurate view of yourself. And I think that's incredibly important because some people here, I think you have such a low view of yourself, you set up walls, you refuse intimate interactions, you despise showing true joy and true emotions, and you think that, honestly, I think some of you, like, in just talking with you, if I may put it so boldly, it's just that you view yourself as scum, right? Like, just really bottom barrel, and you don't have any self-respect. You have to have that transformed mind to say, I need to take an accurate self-assessment in relation to the faith. And what that means is that for the person who thinks that they are so good that they can't contribute in this menial way because it's below me, they need to understand that an accurate assessment says, yeah, no, I'm not too good. I can do that. For somebody on the other side of that coin, you may not be inclined to give because you're, you're so scared about how you may look and how you may fail in doing something. And so you too need to take an accurate self-assessment to say, I have something to contribute to this body. There is something real that God has given me, and we're going to get into the gifts here in a moment, but God has given me something real that I can actually plug in here. So a sober self-assessment kind of brings us back to that balanced middle ground that Paul is looking for. I am neither so great as to need no one, and I am neither so meaningless that my contribution is insignificant. Okay, You are significant, and you are in a place within the body. With that said, we all have different functions. We all have different functions. And throughout this passage, I would encourage you to sort of, if, you know, Ephesians has some, I think, First Corinthians has different ones, whatever. I would encourage you to just maybe circle some that you know are yours if, if this is relevant to you. We're not gonna, I mean, this could be an entire study. I think somebody here actually asked me, did you ask me for a gift study? I think it was you, you asked for a gift study. We really could do that. I don't have the time, I'm gonna be flying through. Um, <clears throat> prophecy, what a way to start right i mean wow what a gift to start on no we really could we could dive into this we could get into cessationalism continuationalism whatever um if you're wondering my position soft cessationalism i don't think anywhere in scripture is it say that these things are done i don't think you can get to that textually it seems that god has stopped working in his church as predominantly in that way that's more of an experiential look at the church does that mean that god does not no does it mean it should be tested and held to all the standards that the New Testament was? Yeah. 
And I don't think we can say much beyond that, except what we see to be true around us and what is in the Bible. Okay, so I, I think people try to shove more on it than that. Prophecy, um, this has something, the idea of a gift of God puts words into somebody's mouth, okay, and they say it. Something that is not like revealed before the prophet reveals it. Um, the gift the gift of prophecy, I think, is really, if you want some clues about it, go over to 1 Corinthians 14. I, when I look at 1 Corinthians 14, the way 1 Corinthians 14, 25 describes it, it says the secrets of the heart are being revealed and an unbeliever may be convicted. So the way I think about it is like, somebody comes into the congregation and somebody stands up and proclaims something that nobody else should know. It is clearly revealed by God and it drives them to repentance. And it's like, whoa, okay, that wasn't something anyone should know here. God had to have revealed that. Um, but it is, but that means it has to be determined to be true. It causes conviction. It causes learning. It causes encouragement. It is orderly. You know, there's so many things to, to do with it here, but it has some element of what is hidden has been revealed by God through somebody. That's the gift of prophecy on the 10,000 foot view. The gift of service. This comes from the idea. I would, I didn't look up the Greek word, but assuming it is the same diakonos, it's the, the idea of waiting tables, right? You, I, this is the catch-all gifts, right? The gift of helps, which I say Joe has. The gift of service, waiting tables. It means you're, I think it's just somebody who has that special knack for, and I wouldn't classify myself as this. You see the need in what other people are doing. You see somebody else doing a thing and you say, oh man, I, I really think I could use just a, just a little bit right here. If, you, if that's you and you just notice things like that, that's probably you. You probably have this gift. Uh, you're awesome at doing something for someone else for the glory of God. That's the that's the helping hand of a servant. The teacher, this is much more my alley, is one who passes on what has already been given and they're preserving it on to the next generations of Christians. Right? What has been given and once delivered to all the saints, the teacher takes that, tries to box it up in ways that people can understand and helps them to believe it and to take that into their Christian walk. I would say that if you're, I would say that that one is much more me. The exhorter is somewhat me. This is someone who comes alongside people in the Christian community, and they're that friend that you want but you don't want, right? They're not a yes man, because the exhorter can range from anywhere to suck it up, Buttercup. You need to be doing this better, and you're wrong here. To a gentle word of encouragement. The exhorter is somebody who is. It's just really the person is just designed to help you live the Christian walk better. You both said under the t same teaching, the exhorter being spiritually mature says, you aren't living up to that, buddy. You know, give them people elbow, you know, people's elbow. And it can be, it can be harsh. It can be gentle. The exhorter helps you live the Christian life better. Yes. Let's see here. Um, go ahead and we're going to go into the, the, these three are just sort of, uh, they, he sort of forms a different little group here. Um, maybe you're financially successful or less than successful, but you just really have that gift giving attitude. You know, maybe you're t drawn to tangibly giving tokens to people in the body and that really means something for you. Paul's admonition is do it in simplicity. Generosity is an interesting translation. Basically the word simplicity is don't do it with an ulterior motive. Okay. Then we have people who are leading. They are instructed to do it with eagerness and diligence. If you're somebody who does merciful things all the time, like visiting the poor, sick, elderly, imprisoned, etc., then you're supposed to do it with a cheery attitude. Yes, sir. Well, I would just say, mercy strikes me 
<laughs> right? If you think about it, it seems like it should be the sort of thing where anybody can do it in roughly equal measure. It just requires a little bit of practice and self-training. Yeah. What Paul says here is, is that it's a gift, which implies that some people have more, I guess, inner wells of mercy than others, which is interesting and also humbling, yeah. a little scary. Yeah, and I, I think what Paul does right here for these three, for whatever particular reason, is he hits them right where they may struggle. Somebody who gives a lot may become disillusioned because they never get anything in return, and they start giving with ulterior motives. Somebody who weeds a lot says, man, these stupid people following me, they can't, you know, they'd fall off a cliff if I weren't here. You know, that's, that's, that's the problem. And then you get tired and you're like, oh, you know, woe me, I, I don't have any energy to do anything anymore. I have no zeal, I have no passion, I have no fire, okay? That's what Paul is fighting against here. Somebody who does a lot for other people doesn't get much done for them. They don't get mercy shown to them and they sort of get disillusioned with that and they become cynical. They don't become cheery. And so I think if any of these are you, I think Paul's admonition is, is very helpful just as a little like guardrail on your gift to be like, okay, I, I need to be careful. Um, two things that I want to draw out here. <clears throat> Number one, Paul does not suggest that a spiritual gifts test is the best way to find out your spiritual gifts. <laughs> Paul suggests that, let's find it here. All right, let's, where is it? Uh, measure of faith, many members, um, do, do not all have same, same function, having gifts that differ according to grace, let us use them. Use your gifts, try, try them out, try teaching, try doing something nice for somebody, try giving them <laughs> some cash. Maybe you'll find out you have the gift of mercy and you never knew it, right? You have to put yourself out there. You have to lead. You have to do something in order to find the gifts. That's the best way to find it is if you're doing God's will generally, he tends to reveal his will more specifically once you are acting in it. And honestly, it, you, most of the time it's just, wow, I really loved doing that. And you have a special passion for that. You have a special knack for it. Um, I think you have to be careful with teaching on that one because you have to be apt to teach, which has some certain things in it which some churches would do well to recognize but I'm just, hey, I'm just calling a spade a spade here even if it puts me six feet under as well so act do something get out there that's the best way to find out what your spiritual gift is okay start off with a test if you want I don't really care do something that's the point of this passage number two um, since we are not greater than one another or more lowly than one another but we're one in the body Mercy is not restricted to the person that has the gift of mercy. Leading is not restricted, okay? And, and I think that's really important, not only for sake of action, but for the people that do have those gifts. It can mean even more because it's like a love language, right? I mean, I don't, it's not, but it's like, wow, somebody actually led something. That's so beautiful. Or I, I do like gift giving all the time. Wow, that means so much to me. And so maybe it feels awkward. Maybe you don't feel like you really know what you're doing. But somebody who has that gift is probably really going to appreciate it. So I would just encourage you, um, teacher, prophet, you're never too great to give the gift that goes unseen. My unseen givers who like to hang in the corners and, you know, preferably groups of less than one, you know, <laughs> you know, if you could have it your way, you wouldn't even be there. You know, like if, you know, those people who just hide in the shadows, maybe lead something, right? Push yourself. Give that, give that gift in some sense to somebody else. I think that could be really, really, really helpful. Yes, we desperately need each other. No one part of the body is able to function well beyond that. Okay, very good. Our third part, 
And this is the defining mark of what it means to be a Christian. This is the defining point. Uh, so we all function in our w unique ways, but what is the one thing that is Christian through and through? The gift of love. And that is, I mean, what could be more Paul? I mean, if this doesn't scream authentic Paul writing, then I don't know what does. Because uh, commentators struggle with how to put this together because it's just rapid fire, like words and sentences of ideas about, about how to be a better person and live out what Christ has given to us. And I think Mu does a great job with it. He says that he outlines it as love and its manifestations. All of these things are a manifestation of love. Uh, whoever has 9 through 21, be sure to yell it. So our love is to be real, it is to be genuine, uh, it is to be deep as opposed to fake, superficial, and just merely emotional. And so we're going to find out what it looks like to have this love that's supposed to be the central Christian ethic that's supposed to help us keep the law. We're going to find out what it means to have that loving mind. We're going to find out what it is really to be loving to each other because I think it is so easy to sort of be self-deceived. You can almost justify anything as, oh, I'm being loving by doing exactly what I wanted to do all along. So this is helpful in sort of guiding in what it looks like to be loving. What is the first description of love? The first description of love, and this is super helpful for apologetics, if anyone wants this first, love is to a God who is loving, hates what is evil passionately, and clings to what is good. Okay, Love has hatred for evil, and it has clinging to what is good. And that word clinging has some marital connotations to it. You are supposed to be married to what is good, basically. And as the word um, as the word has it, you're supposed to just have that intimate union with goodness. First, this is super general, um, but it means love one another like brothers, because we are. I, I, I couldn't get the Vin Diesel meme of family out of my mind as I was writing this, you know, just like Paul appear, like Vin Diesel appearing over Paul's shoulder, like family when he's writing this, you know, what is love? Family. Everything's about family. Right. And so that's the first thing that it means to be loving towards the Christian community is that you treat each other like family. Now, if I may be so bold again, I think that this I wish to appeal to some of your family relationships, but I think this is really difficult because some family relationships that we have here in this group are so broken that it can't even carry the weight of the analogy, if you would. It, it, we're supposed to be like, oh yeah, I get what love is because I see that in my family. And, and honestly, I just, I don't know if that's true for everyone. And so I want to back up just a moment and, and, and just 
allow me to speak to what a family does do. A family, no matter how annoying they are, our family, you can disagree with them, you can become angry with them at times, yes, but inside the family, you never walk away and you never say, I'm completely done. Now, unfortunately, that does sometimes happen in physical families, but even, even to a greater degree in our spiritual family, it is literally impossible to walk away from them in a final eternal sense because you're going to be stuck together for all of eternity, whether you like it or not. You're going to be, I mean, that's awesome. Everything, everything will work out. Okay. But you're going to be in the same location for all of eternity. So try not to burn those bridges. Um, if someone is in your spiritual family, you should treat them like a brother from another mother or, or a sister from another mother. Paul didn't make a comment. He didn't say a single word about who your bestie is within the Christian community. He doesn't really care. He wants you to treat everyone like they're a brother. And, and it doesn't mean that we all click with each other just as well. I understand that. But it does mean that we need to have impartiality when we come together. Okay, that's, that's the best... I, there's no way to fake that you just personality-wise click with everyone. And, and certainly you can see in the New Testament church, not everyone clicked with everybody. But at the end of the day, you have to live up to a place where you have brotherly affection for one another. <clears throat> yes, another thing that families do, and this is right inside the passage here, is families should praise one another. Stop thinking this is what it means to have honor one another. It means to heap praise on them. It means to look for something good in them. When I consciously make a choice to show up to somebody and find something good, something praiseworthy, something honorable to comment on, I, I think, I, I mean, there really is something to be found in every single person that is honorable and you could comment on positively. And when I do say something good, rarely do I walk away with a worse relationship from that. Right? I mean, we, we often look for those negative things on accident. It's just sort of our default behavior. What if we look for something good? We focus on finding something good and telling them something wonderful that they're doing. That would build relationships in a much more positive way. By the way, a consistent teaching of the Bible, going back to this family illustration here, and I think Paul sort of leaves it after this. Going back to this family illustration is, this is consistent with sin scripture, and I think it's especially for elders. If you cannot have a hold of how you act within your household and your family, you cannot lead in the church well or as well <laughs> either, right? If you don't have a hold of how you're supposed to live within your household, what hope do you have of leading well within the church, loving well within the church? Especially if your parents are believers within the home, you are required to do all of this with joy. And I'll go so far as to say that if you're a tension maker on, in your home, but a peacemaker of butterfly happiness in your church friends, then your love is fake, it is disingenuous, and you need to reassess yourself more soberly as we discussed at the beginning of the passage, right? If you want to be love to be real, then love is this agape, self-sacrificial realness throughout your entire life. We criticize the family that, that, you know, yells at each other all the way to church. Mass on, we're good to go into church, literally and figuratively, unfortunately. Um, but I think we do the same thing and we're setting ourselves up. We're self-deceived if we don't see that same tendency in ourselves as we move into being parents and that age as well. Think you're self-deceived if, if, if we're not sort of seeing that with our own families now. So if you're a tension maker at home, and not and you're you know wonderful in the church reassess yourself and see how genuine your love really is 
Okay, now we now we move uh, into verse 11 here. Don't be lazy, but be, and I'm sort of translating a different way, but be set on fire by the Spirit. That can be really abused, but many of you have the gifts of leadership and you have all you have all these gifts and potential within the church but the one thing that prevents you from really leading and really doing your gift well is that you have no drive i want you to live and to eat and to sleep and to drink and to breathe and worship god through the gift that you have yeah would you classify it almost as like zeal yeah that's in this passage yeah but <laughs> isn't zeal yeah I just, that's what an expositor does, by the way, is they find synonyms for all the same words and find new sentences to say it, and that sounds really deep. Okay, that's <laughs> So, um, I, John Piper's notoriously just hyphenating them, God-glorifying, sin-destroying, man-humiliating, and it's just like, how many hyphens can you put together? Um, so, all right, let's, let's get back in here. Let's find where I am. Um, this does not mean that you don't take Sabbaths for restoring your energy for your spiritual gift. I think that's fine, but when you're on, you're on. And I will say for myself that when I wake up in the morning um, and just throughout the day, my mind is obsessively on things that relate to my gift. Whether I like it or not, I have things that are always on my mind related to what I feel I do in the body of Christ. And it's not, it's not like I choose, like, I mean, sometimes you do, right? But it's just like, I eat it. I like. I live that. And it's not like it is. It is refilling in itself. Again, that doesn't mean you don't take a breath and go, you know, relax and restore occasionally. But it should be something that is filling when you do it, as well. So you take extreme ownership of your area of service to Christ. Great book, by the way. Um, work your butt off by zeal. Extreme ownership. Really good book. Uh, work your butt off by zeal and have the fire of the Spirit burning within you. Now these next three. Um, are going to go together. Rejoice in the hope that you have coming for you. This means that you know what your hope is, you fix your eyes on what's coming, and not so much on the issues of life. I see this as one of the great downfalls of scriptural illiteracy, particularly of eschatology, is that you have no idea how the story ends. I mean, you know, like, we win. Yeah, that's cool. But when you're being persecuted, we win is not enough. You need to know what it looks like, how we win, what's coming, what is the what are all these things that God has laid out particularly for my hope in Jesus Christ? That will help you in the next part when you whenever you're in ministry, you're going to need to be patient because tribulations are coming for you. Tribulations are coming for you. It's going to be hard and you need to lean on the Lord in prayer. Don't quit during the hard times, but instead go to the king in prayer. So, these there are these saints in need in many different ways. Uh, verse 13, again, this is just rapid fire, not super connected for Paul. And one of, one of the ways um, that we can serve is by looking for these needs that the saints have. Whatever degree you are able, make sure that you are helping the brothers to some degree. Look for ways to give them hospitable treatments and don't just wait for opportunities to come to you. The, look, look how active you seek to show hospitality. Hospitality being there were a lot of Christian missionaries, people going around. They would, there, it wasn't like you could go to the you know, days in down the street, right? There wasn't, wasn't such a nice ancient convenience. So Christians would house people going through and, and look for that. Look for ways to be hospitable. Look for the people who are in need and do something for them. Do, and, and I will say on the flip side, don't deprive your fellow saints of meeting your need and being that blessing to you. I think that can be hard for people to receive, especially people who are on the normally giving side. 
maybe you need something in one area and you don't have needs in another, even, a, even if you could meet your own need in some way, there is benefit to allowing someone to do something for you that you could do for yourself even. Um, Joe and I have, <laughs> this is hilarious. Um, this, is, this is a classic thing between her and I, is like, I, I'm a big fan of if I'm on one side of the kitchen and she's on another, just as a small example, I like to have her ask me to get a plate for her. Even though she could get it herself, I'm closer. And so it builds unity in every single action that you do if you ask for something that you don't even need. You know, within reason, don't take that the wrong way. But when you, you can do every, you can do so much for yourself, but why do that when you could depend on each other and build that relationship, right? That is a much, the, American like do it go at it alone approach is not really great for building close relationships Look for ways that you can be served and to serve and try to make that as balanced as possible I just use that as a dumb illustration, but try I mean literally there are ways every single day that you can apply this You'd you'd love I, again. I repeat you guys would love to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations um, verse 14 when someone is harsh mean bitter towards you do not curse them that's you know that's that's the first part of it in some sense but the injunction goes much deeper than that when a ship is blown to the left it is not just enough to hold the helm straight you have to turn it into the right and to turn in to it to stay on course so too when someone is mean to you and it pushes you off the off the path in the christian walk you have to turn into that and you have to you have to actively seek to be good to them you have to bless them and not curse them. You have to do good things and look for those good things that you can do. So yes, I am absolutely advocating for you to go out of your way to do someone something nice for someone that has hurt you within reason. Like I'm not saying put yourself in an unsafe situation. There are way, different ways to do nice things for people. But my point is, is that by, by the vast majority of situations, do something nice for the people who hurt you. Next verse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Our joys and sh sorrows be should become attached to the body of Christ. Sometimes um, I, I find that particularly it is difficult because we look at other people's excitements and sorrows as something pretty stupid, right? Like sometimes you're like, whoa, wow, that is, that is an interesting thing to be excited over there, buddy, or that is a dumb thing to be distraught over. And man, is it tough to empathize when you're stuck thinking that's a dumb thing to be in an emotional fit about. That's really difficult to empathize with them. And what I want to say here is that we have to prevent this biased mindset. And how do we do it? Right in the next verses, we associate with lowly tasks and lowly people. The decision between people and tasks is a very difficult one exegetically. But I think the right way of thinking of it is do things with people and love them while you're doing it. I mean, think, think back to high school or middle school. You had something super exciting or super destroying that definitely didn't involve the other gender, you know, at all, right? And it wasn't like you just got broken up with after a three-day relationship. <laughs> but I remember when I was in fits of emotions, people who came alongside me and reflecting back, I'm like, they're so gracious for not just telling me, wow, you are a straight up idiot for crying about this. But do I remember the person who sat beside me while I struggled all day and they were just there to distract me and to have a good time with me and to be with me? 
Yeah. And do I always remember that they were faithful as a friend to me when I was going through something? Absolutely. And so what I want you to keep in mind is that just because it's not real to you, doesn't mean it's not real to them. In the light of eternity, <laughs> I would hazard a guess that almost everything we go through is stupid to some degree, joys and sorrows. The saints in heaven have to be thinking for 99% of these things, wow, that is an important. But, but as a body of Christ, it is real and, and it is subjective. And so we have to come alongside. And the point is that that is, that is an opportunity to demonstrate love, to build relationship. It doesn't matter the objectiveness of it. Think the point is to build a relationship, to demonstrate love to other believers like Christ has done for us. The older translations are helpful in this next verse here. Um, it's think the same things toward each other. We need to have a similar renewed mind. We don't want to have this biased mindset where we have strong differences. We ha need to have some fundamental unity of thinking. Doesn't mean we can't have diversity, but it, it, we have to have unity in our way of thinking. How do we have this harmony of thinking? Well, when you, when you get stuck up in the ivory towers for so long, you never get down into scrubbing a toilet, sort of living, and that's how you get disharmony or dis disunity really, is, is you never associate with lowly people doing lowly tasks. When you do associate, when you go back to doing what you started at the bottom of the food chain in the Christian world, to use the corporate analogy, you're reminded all again, yeah, okay, I'm not any different. Yeah, we're just the same. This person who just got saved, just sort of not knowing what they're doing, I was there. That's me. We're all the same humans, saved by grace, right? This is, it brings us back to a common ground and takes your thinking back to a harmonious humility. That's the point. So what's the fix? Go scrub toilets with the poorest, smelliest members of your congregation once in a while. And that's really good for the pastor, right? You know, you need to have the inward parts getting praise and you need to have the outward parts doing the humble servant service things that no one sees. So it reminds us fundamentally that we are no different than the lowliest. We are all saved by grace. Um, next verse, uh, again, Paul's just bouncing around here. Um, verse uh, 17, don't get even for something that someone did wrong to you. Instead, when someone does something wrong to you, um, in, in the sight of a non-Christian, particularly do the right thing. Leave the non-Christian even walking away saying, I wouldn't have done that after what they did to me, but Christian did the right thing. I mean, I wouldn't have done it, but you know what? Yeah, that was probably the right thing to do. That's, that's what I want people to walk away with. So, you know, I think we, even as, even as much as we try not to fall into this, somebody's immoral actions can still be a very easy path to justifying our grayness in our actions at the very least and our outright blatant sinfulness if if I may put it so strongly so your actions should never be determined by the morality of the people around you you should always do the right things and leave unbelievers particularly saying wow that was the right thing to do no matter what someone's evil is never an excuse a moral excuse to perform some wrong in return to them <clears throat> okay tensions tensions in the world we're, we're obviously going to have tension as we go through, right? If people are doing us wrong, tension's obviously there. Tension's there. But what do we do with it? 
and and if I may broaden tension within the body of Christ as well, I think I don't think it's wrong to apply that to this situation. It never gives us an excuse to do something wrong, but it doesn't even give us the rights to live at odds with someone else. Sometimes there's going to be situations where there is a little tension there, but it is better. Um, but it better be on their side, right? Like it, it better be their fault at the end of the day. You better have tried everything you can to reconcile within the body of Christ, with people outside the body of Christ, and live peaceably with all men. Jonah had a great conversation again about this, is that oftentimes I think more, I don't think we put enough weight on the tensions being on our side as we may at first like to admit. Um, we need to look more within at tension than I think we may want to. Um, if, if we're just willing to let one annoyance go or pass by um, an annoying comment or a disservice without a harsh word in return, I think suddenly we may see that maturity floods our relationships and that peace has flooded what was a rather tumultuous situation. Some of you probably struggle in your own home with being sarcastic, snarky, passive aggressive, aggressive, you know, just different, different levels of it. And I, I think you may not notice it for one of two reasons. Number one, you may feel justified in those behaviors because of what you're receiving or number two you may not even notice your snarkiness passive aggressiveness etc simply because that is the general tenor of the relationship right like it's just addition comments back and forth and and you're just used to it at this point you don't even notice anything different you're just so accustomed to it and we have to get out of a place where we take this sober self-assessment and say am i being antagonistic am i being passive aggressive and you know Think of the most tense relationship in your life and these very moments may be at your home. What if I just let that intentionally annoying comment go? What if I intentionally focused on managing my comments to not be, you know, Tony and zinger phrases, right? That we, we know what we're doing, right? Like we all know what we're doing. Like you can say it with that inflection or that inflection and they mean two different things relationally and you can just be like, but I just said, this and you're like but did you did you really you said way more than that in, in what you said so just take assessment and intentionality in the phrases that you use and the tone that you say them in on the flip side what if i genuinely complimented honored praised, and told the person that you know you know you find so freaking annoying that you just loved them and cared about them and found something really good about them maybe that would be a quick way to knock down some of that tension if you just told them how much you loved with them. And I think we may find that there is more reversible and more on our side of the equation for the living at peace with all men as much as lies within us. I think we need to give the within us as much credence as we possibly can. Matthias, I, I don't want to pass over you. You had a hand there. My father once stopped, stopped being sarcastic with my grandmother she thought he was mad yeah well and I, I understand that some some people are more sarcastic than others but again whatever way you're which in which your little subculture communicates there's also a way to be angry and passive-aggressive within it and so you have to contextualize it to your own situation but you have to contextualize it to your own situation and actually look within Yes. Yes. And that, I'm not, I genuinely not trying to put that down. Yeah, I'm not accusing you. Let's go to 
let's go to verse um, let's go to verse 19 for the moment beloved you are right you are mistreated inside and outside of the body of Christ people hurt you church hurt is real family hurt is real friendship hurt is real um, it is wrong okay friends hurt you that's real people who are supposed to represent Jesus to you church elders your parents all these people may have very far failed to represent Jesus to you. Don't worry, your hurt is real, your hurt is right, and I don't want to minimize that, but the answer is not to vindicate it yourself. The answer is to pass that vindication to God because God is judge and we are not. He will do what he deems fit and will be a judge that is just in the manner, and we're too biased and too close to the situation. There, there's a reason that they don't let the victim be the judge in a courtroom, right? And I I'm serious that there needs to be some sort of unbiased judge and God is the perfect judge and you are right you probably have been hurt and God will not pass over that 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 will be accounted for someday so I don't want to I don't want to minimize hurt when I'm saying this it's real how we handle that needs to be controlled under scriptural parameters instead of being vengeful we're supposed to do the exact opposite of what they did if you see your enemy has a need meet the need hungry feed them thirsty give them something to drink instead of doing nothing when persecuted paul and jesus want you to do something jesus didn't just tell you to let stand there and let him slap the same cheek twice he said turn the other cheek do something be actionable um, if we, if we do they may feel the weight of their sin and turn to the lord in repentance before it is too late which unless we have a heart like jonah should be a a, a real joy to our hearts you know, and that's, we, we laugh at Jonah like, ah, oh, this guy didn't want the Assyrians to turn. Do you want your persecutor to turn? Would you be joyous if they got repentance? Really? I don't know. Think about it. Absolutely. I hope. Uh, we, we should. Um, love is the word of the day then. We're wrapping up. Love hates evil. Love cherishes good. <clears throat> why, or rather, how and why do we feed evil? We do not fight fire with fire. Certainly, yes, evil can be on our doorstep and it can feel overwhelming. Um, when I went through this, it reminds me of uh, Heath Ledger's Joker, who in that is personified evil. Um, at what moment did Joker win in, in that movie? When he broke Harvey Dent. It is when, when goodness gave in to fighting fire with fire and evil that things went very wrong. As, as Christians, we, we defeat fire with the living water of Christ's goodness. For the depraved, it is true that you either die the hero or live, your, live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Thankfully, as Christians, we live with a greater hope that we are truly overcomers in Christ, right? Like in the final analysis, you're not gonna go bad in the end. Christ is gonna persevere you. You need to live a pattern of love that is overcoming the evil and not stepping down into the mire. To quote Michelle Obama, when they go low, you go high. You know, when, when, when people do things, don't become like them, become like Christ. He has called us to have a transformed mind. He has called us to salvation and the gift and callings of God are irrevocable, okay? God has given you this transformed mind to love people and to be humble live like that our chapter 12 summary the christian life starting from the beginning follow along the christian excuse me the christian life is intended to be one of worship to god as we grow in grace with our transformed mind 
we learn to discern more clearly how God would have us to live. First, God would have us to live humbly in community with other believers, each of us having an accurate assessment of ourselves, we contribute our respective gifts to the body functioning cohesively. Second, Christians love. Treating one another as family, we pursue the end God has for us with intensity, joy, patience, prayerfulness, and hospitality. When we endure persecution and hurt, and that's going to happen, Christians actively return goodness. We identify with our family and live harmoniously with them by remaining humbled through our deeds and our associations, righteous choices, peaceable responses, lack of vengeful behaviors, and actionable kindness instead may result in the conviction of our adversary, whether they are inside of the body of Christ or outside. And hopefully, hopefully that does refer to outside. Summarily, Christians finally win, in the final analysis that is, because goodness is the ultimate defeater of evil. Evil does not, perpetuating evil is never gonna win. You need to go above and, and live in the shadow of Christ when you, when you come into difficult times. Don't, don't step into what others are doing. So at this time, we're gonna split back up into our prayer groups and, and I have two purposes that I wanna do this for. Um, first is I want you to work through this is a shotgun approach to a chapter, right? Paul just laid out there a bunch of things. And it's, it's sort of, there really isn't much to tie together as I go through that. And I'm sure you felt that as we went through. It's just sort of injunction, injunction, injunction. Do this, do this, do this. The first purpose, I want you to sit down with your prayer group, look through the passage and find one actionable way to, to bring back to Koinonia that we could improve. Right? Do you see something that we could do better? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Just using this as an example, find some tangible, actionable way that I can walk away with and say, we need to do this better by doing this. That's what I want you to find. One thing, one thing that you feel we could do better. Um, the second thing that I wanted to do with this passage though, this was the original intent for it, is I wanted to create a space to remedy injured relationships within the group. If you feel that there is something with someone that's amiss in this group, then make that call, have that conversation, give those flowers, if you will, while that person is still alive and you still have the opportunity within this group. We don't have forever, both as a group and as people, right? And it, it is life and time together is too short to walk away and have relationships that are off. And when I say off, I, some of you may be sitting there in your head saying, it isn't bad, it's just okay. And I, if, it, if you're at the okay level, I want you to do something if it is possible within you to do something, to take it from okay to walking out of here as better, good, or great, I don't care, take it to as high a degree as you possibly can. So if you can, and if there's anything that you can do to make an okay relationship into a good relationship, then I want you to try to take that time to have that conversation tonight. Um, and and that hopefully someday we may be able to genuinely say that we feel great about all the relationships that we have here with each other. I, I really do hope that it's probably an unattainable goal with our unredeemed humanists still hanging around, but I would, I would love to see that. So uh, it should have released just a moment ago. I released a time to survey to release at uh, 8.30, a post that each prayer group leader can just drop a, a paragraph or whatever to me about how we feel we could do better. Give me your actionable thing and it should be able to populate right into band something for me, okay? 
Um, if that's giving you trouble, let me know and, and just shoot me a text, of course. So go ahead and split back up in your prayer groups and we'll, we'll be done around the usual time. Bye, Aiden.